welcome to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. I'm John Sierra Reinecker, your host for this episode, and I'll be chatting with Tess Taylor, president of NARUP, known as the National Association of Record Industry Professionals. Tess, great to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. Well, I'm excited to chat with you because I have an understanding of NARA, but I really want to kind of dive in a little deeper and learn more. And I'm I'm sure our listeners want to learn more as well. So I'm super excited. Thank you again for joining us today. So let's just start. My pleasure. (laughs) So let's just start completely at the beginning. What is NARA? Well, uh, NARIP is the National Association of Record Industry Professionals, and we were formed in 1998. We're 21 years old now. We are an organization of professionals who we promote career advancement, education, and goodwill in the record business and related music industries. So what that means, if it's not already clear, is once the music has been made, we help to get it out there. So we provide tools, access, and expertise to market and monetize music. Awesome. Awesome. So I know you kind of answered this in uh, your, or just now, but let's dive a little deeper and talk about how does NARA play an important role in one's music career? What additional resources can you chat about or additional services can you chat about here? Well, we're a trade association and I formed it because I was looking for something like it to join. Really, probably the most important function of all is the mentoring. It's the how to do things and learning it from people who are doing it and or doing it better and or at the top of the heap in in this business. So my orientation has always been to find out who's the best at doing something or who's really, really good at it, and what can we learn from them. So in the same way that you're asking me questions now, I've developed an interview strategy to basically I have a a lifelong love of learning and an insatiable curiosity to figure out how things work. Because when you know how things work, you can do better. You can avoid lots of mistakes. You can leap forward in your career and in life, and you can just do better when you have better information. So I was seeking, when I got into the music business, I was seeking people who were uh, older, wiser, smarter, better in every way to to sort of align with them, to just be around them, to learn from them, because back in that time, we didn't have as much uh, sort of music business curriculum at universities the way we do now. And even so, I would always want to, to be in direct contact with the the, the professionals, you know, the people who are in the trenches. So the most valuable thing I think that NARIP offers is access to those individuals who are really at the top of the heap, who are, who are successful in doing what they're doing, who have, have, have done many, many things and sometimes failed because failure is important too, but have gotten back up and, and forged really great careers for themselves. Those are the type of people you want to be around, and those are the type of people that you want to learn from, and that's what NARIP is. I seek those people out, and I draw them in, not only for my own personal and professional benefit, but for the professional benefit of all of our members. So that's, you know, that to me is the most important and critical thing of all in any career. Even in your personal life, you want to be around people who are doing well, who are happy and successful, who are problem solvers. You don't want to have, you know, you don't want to be dragging around people in your life who who, who are not 
not not producing and which is not to say that you you this is not to say that you 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 disregard people who who aren't at the top of the heap that's too machiavellian and that's not what i'm saying at all everybody needs help you need help i need help but you want to align with people who are doing things who are positive, who are successful. And I define success as people who are doing what they want to do with their lives and who aren't sitting around whining and being cynical and critical. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, absolutely. It does. So let's talk about joining NARUP. If a music creator from an artist or a producer or whomever wanted to join NARUP, how would they go about doing that? Well, it's, we used to have a criteria that you had to be uh, uh, employed at a major or an independent label or a distributor back in the day when NARUP was formed. But the industry was much, much different than it was larger. The major label system was much more robust. Since that time, there have been so many murders and acquisitions, it's hard to even keep up. So today the criteria has been loosened somewhat, although I find, interestingly, that it's still very self-selecting. And anybody who has music to market is welcome to join. So, but we are, we are a professional organization and we are not specifically not an artist organization. We don't do songwriter circles and, and how to write songs and things like that. It's strictly what is done after the music has been made. How is it marketed and monetized? So we take over where the music has been produced, recorded, uh, and mastered essentially. That's that's what we do. And so, yes, anyone who has music to market can sign up and join NARUP. Perfect. So let's talk a little bit about your role with NARUP as president. What are your daily responsibilities? <laughs> that's well, a loaded that question, change. right? <laughs> yeah, well, that can change from moment to moment. And mainly it's to be of service to my members. What do they want? What do they need? And how can I provide that? So, that basically means creating programming that will be useful to them and creating access that they need. So that can involve anything from making strategic introductions. Somebody needs to meet a manager or an agent or this or that. I just connected a couple of our members to people uh, yesterday via email. I make introductions. I advise people. Um, I consult people on an individual basis and sort of generally anybody can call and we can schedule, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, That is something I'm I'm happy to do. And my duties are, that encompasses most of what I do, which fills my days. So I'm constantly on the lookout and on the prowl for interesting business opportunities and interesting executives who are doing cool things. So I read a lot about who's doing what in the music business, and I have this particular sort of uh, characteristic that this, I don't know, it's some, maybe if, it seems unique to me that I have sort of a filofax brain. When I'm reading about someone or something, I immediately, immediately start making connections with, oh, I should tell so-and-so about that. I should mention this to so-and-so, or I should connect him with her, or this with that. So this is sort of a, I don't know if it's a phenomenon, but it's something that I do very naturally and almost almost involuntarily, but it's the essence of what I do is I'm a connector. I connect A with B, U with him, 
them with her opportunities with people, people with opportunities. Constantly, I'm constantly doing this. It's just, it's, 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 it's fun because you're, you're, when you call people and you say, look, I'd like to introduce you to so-and-so. I want you to know about this or that opportunity. People are happy to hear from you because you're helping them. And that's, that's what I do. I enable people to, to, to do better, to be the best possible versions of themselves, to improve, to build their business. And it's, it's, it's great fun and it's tremendously rewarding because you're, you're, you're creating something, you're making something, you're, uh, you're pushing people up and forward, and everybody needs that. So it's it's a great job, and it's essentially what I make of it, and that is what I make of it. So it's lots of emails, lots of phone calls, lots of talking to people, which I love, lots of reading, research, that sort of thing, and then creating programs and opportunities out of all of these things that I pull together for my members. That's amazing. And definitely a perfect lead into my next question, which is what would you say has been your greatest achievement in your role as president of NARA? My greatest achievement? Yes. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Well, my greatest achievement, I was just telling somebody about this the other day. I have an enormous, enormous drawer, a legal size drawer, and then several huge boxes of thank you notes from tons and tons of people and members. And then, of course, I have digital folders as well, where every time somebody says thank you to me or sends some word of appreciation, I like to save it. That's called my good news file. And I have that uh, habit. I picked up that from one of my first bosses in the music business, Tony Tolbert. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. And he kept a good news file. And I thought, what a great idea. When somebody sent him a thank you note, he have it, you know, he put it aside and save it. And my good news file is so enormous that it just, it makes me happy and it makes me proud because, you know, the little things that you do, you might not even know how much they affect someone unless they tell you. And sometimes they tell you and sometimes they don't. And I am aware of having helped and improved lots and lots and lots of lives it makes me very, very happy. It sure beats selling men's shoes, but of course, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with selling men's shoes if that's what one does. It, it's that's my achievement. I think is to enable people to raise them up, because my attitude is a rising tide raises all ships. When you do better, John C. A., then I do better, and then when we're all doing better, then that's great because there's less suffering and stupidity in the world. And when people have good jobs that they're creative, creatively fulfilled, when they're doing better, when they're earning some money, when they can put food on the table and raise families, when they can work hard and be recognized, that's better for everybody. That prevents wars and rape and crime and horrible things because people who are creatively engaged in doing well. They don't go home and kick the dog and beat their wife and, and cause wars, right? They're doing good. And good creates more good. And this is my way of trying to elevate the human race, perhaps in the smallest possible way, but little things make a difference. So that sounds almost, you know, highfalutin, but it matters. When you do good things for people, it makes a big difference. And sometimes the, the smallest things can can really change lives. Yeah. So I think 
you know, I couldn't point to one specific thing as an achievement, but generally just being helpful and useful to people is, is, it, it, it's a good thing. It feels good. I love my job. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it, it, it's, it's not as though when one person gets an opportunity, there's one less opportunity for you or for me. Another person getting an opportunity means now there's even more opportunity for the rest of us. So I look at the universe as one of abundance and creating opportunities is just, it's fun. It's the act of creation. It's not necessarily writing a song, but creating a business opportunity is every bit as creative as as writing a song and, and even more so in some ways. So everything matters and I love what I do. And I think my huge drawer of thank you notes and my digital files of things like that is just, that's the thing that makes me most proud. I mean, I've even been thinking about it. You know, we've had a lot of interesting upheavals in in Los Angeles, but how would I preserve this in the event of a fire or an earthquake or something like that? Because this is, I mean, this is, you know, this is the thing that's, these are the things that are, that are most valuable to me. Uh, and that, I, that I think would be one of the, one of the best. I so resonate with that. First of all, I definitely have my own version of that. I have um, in my email, I have a kudos folder. So every time someone sends me something at TuneCore, you know, whether it's a congratulations or a thank you, I always archive it, you know, just, you know, on those days where you need that extra motivation and just a gentle reminder as to why you're in this business, why you're doing what you do. Um, so I so get that. But also I agree with you on on some other things that you said. And I, I personally believe that when you invest in others, you'll always see a return. And I, I feel that not enough executives, especially executives, kind of have that mindset. It's all about what you can do for me. And they kind of lose the purpose of it all. Like you're actually in your position to serve because you're nothing without your customers. You're nothing without your membership. You're nothing without the people that you serve. So I so love that you had that genuine, just resourceful perspective. I I love that. And I I think that attributes to why you're successful. (laughs) Well, it, it's 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 a virtuous circle, and you might there are some people who might say that you know virtue is its own reward, reward, which I think is true, but it's also immensely self serving because <laughs> the more good you do, the more good you get. Yeah. And 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 but it's beautiful. There's there's it it you could call it selfish or you could call it selfless, and you'd be right in both instances. So. I want to live in a world where people are decent and happy and good and kind. I want to minimize the I want to minimize the negativity and increase the positivity. I want to live in a world that's comfortable and beautiful and creative and and good, right? Yeah. And I recognize that there are there's a lot of there's a lot of problems out there. There's crime, there's anger, there's sadness, there's rape, there's homelessness, there's war, there's hunger. There's so many, you don't have to go more than a hundred yards to find someone in, in, in deep trouble and in great need or depression or suicidal. And you can make a difference just within your own little circumference, within your own little world. You can raise people up. You can raise the level of civility. You can, 
give somebody a sandwich who's hungry. You can give someone a, a, a kind word. Those things make such a difference. I mean, I'm, I'm remembering an instance where I intervened once at a company where I worked, and uh, the executives, the vice presidents at that company got all kinds of wonderful perks, including having their cars detailed once a week. So this guy who ran the car de- detailing service would come in, and he'd bring in all these guys uh, who were Hispanic and didn't speak very good English, if they spoke any English at all. And the, uh, the Hispanic guys would take the car keys and race off and wash and detail the cars. Well, one day I came back from lunch, and one of the executives was yelling at someone ferociously down the hall. So I wandered down to see what was going on. And this guy, who was an attorney, was yelling and just laying into one of these Hispanic kids who was cowering in a corner and couldn't really defend himself or even speak much English. So I assessed what was going on. The kid had accidentally scratched the executive's car, and the executive was just going nuts and it was you know the punishment didn't fit the crime yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i was i was i was a secretary at the time so i was you know not not an executive like this guy but i interviewed and i said you know what dude knock it off the kid is terrified he's shaking in his boots all right he couldn't have been more than 15 or 16 years old i said you should be ashamed of yourself cut it out i'm sure he didn't do it he didn't do it purposefully look at him you know he's 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 shaking with fear. And so I, you know, I literally stood between the executive and this kid. I led the kid away. I got him a soda. I sat him down in my area and I spoke to him in my, my not so good Spanish. I, you know, I said, what's your name? Como se llama? I said, I, uh, you know, muy, muy loco, this guy. Don't worry about him. I said, you know, I gave him a couple of sodas and half of my sandwich or something. And I just calmed him down and he was, he was just, you know, he was so glad to get out of the line of fire. So I'm like, okay, well, that's just, that was my natural inclination to go and help this kid. Well, the next week, the the guy's boss, the, the head of the detailing business came to me and he said, um, Jose uh, wants to wash your car, Tess. And I said, oh, well, that's nice. I can't afford the detailing service. He said, oh, no, he, he wants to do it for free. I said, really? (laughs) He's so grateful to you. So literally every week for the next two years, this kid washed and detailed my car every week without pay in thanks for me rescuing him from this idiot, right? And I thought, that's amazing. I mean, that, that, that was such a that was so valuable to him. And, and I can see it now because he was defenseless. He couldn't defend himself in English. He probably, you know, took every cent that he owned and sent it home to his family in Mexico. Who who knows where his family was at the time? Who knows, right? And I just, I just, the injustice of it was so appalling that I had to intervene and say, what the hell do you think you're doing to this kid? Can you, you're, you must be ashamed of yourself. An attorney berating this poor kid who barely speaks any English at all because he scratched your car. Get over it. Awful. So, <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just mentioning that as just an incredibly small thing. You can intervene and help people 
in a really meaningful way, and you don't even it doesn't even seem like a big deal to you, but it's everything to them. It's everything to them, and and that's I, I wish more people would do things like that. Little, medium, large. There's a lot of talk in our business about racism, sexism, thisism, thatism, and it certainly exists. But you've got to call it when you see it and stop people who are behaving badly when they are behaving badly, or at least say, hey, what is up with that? That's not very polite. So let's talk a little bit about your official start in the music industry. Let's talk about your first job in the industry. What was that experience like? Well, uh, the first job in the music industry, I suppose, would have been uh, when I was attending the University of Vienna in Austria. And I heard an ad on the radio that they needed someone in the office of Blue Dam YouTube Radio. So I went down and applied for the job, but I was I was not hired. They needed a secretary in the office, and I was not hired because I didn't know shorthand at the time. But lo and behold, about a week later, I got a call from the executive producer. I'll never forget. Her name was Pelia Harold, and she was a very imperious British woman with just you know, great gravitas. And she called me and had me come back to the office. And I thought, oh, what's this about? And she said, you know, Tess, you didn't really make the cut because you don't have shorthand, but we have another position available. And I thought, Tess, that your your attitude was very good. So anyway, I'm sort of, you know, pretending to be Telia. But <laughs> she she liked my my demeanor and that I was seemed calm and competent and sort of unflappable. So she offered me an even better position, which was a weekend morning producer of their show, of the, you know, the English language show, English language show in, in Vienna, Blue Danube Radio, because there's a very large English-speaking population in, in Vienna. So I'm like, oh, that's great. Not only is it more fun, but it pays a whole lot more. Fabulous. I said, yes, of course, I'll do it. So that was my first job, morning producer, on the weekends for Blue Danube Radio in Austria, so I would basically run interference for the uh, the English-speaking DJs and the German language, the Austrian engineers and, and the you know news reports and all that. So that was a lot of fun. And then when I graduated from college and moved to L.A., my first job was at Avalon Attractions, which at the time was the largest concert promoter in Southern California. So that was a lot of fun, too. Awesome. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about navigating the music industry as a woman. And you've been in this industry for quite some time. Your season would be an understatement. What challenges, and I mean that in the best way, because I just want to clarify that because, you know, I said that one time to someone and they were like, I'm seasoned. So you're saying I'm old? No, that's not what I meant. I meant you're experienced. (laughs) So what challenges have you faced as a woman working in the music industry? Well, I have faced challenges, but I can't point to any of them. I can't point to the reason for those challenges specifically being because I'm female. Uh, I think challenges I've faced are are fairly common to both sexes. And whereas I'm sure sexism, I know sexism, sexism exists. I see it, but I haven't, I haven't let it stop me. And it, 
it's an interesting question because I can't say whether I've been extremely lucky and or it's just the way that I carry myself. And perhaps it's a little bit of both. But I will also tell you that the two very worst bosses I have ever had in my entire life were both female. So I wouldn't count on the fact that working with women is going to be a necessarily positive experience. You know, gay, straight, black, white, Jewish, Christian, uh, male, female, you don't really know. I mean, people come in all shapes and sizes, good and bad, this and that, and you just have to take people as individuals and not assume that just because someone is female, she's going to be a better boss or a better coworker or a better this or that. So um, the challenges are mostly just enduring situations that aren't particularly good and figuring out how to get the best out of them and or if you should depart. So I actually had a friend over yesterday and we were talking about this and I told her I was going to be interviewed this morning by you and she is a a very strong woman too. She's a, a computer programmer who actually has just retired and we were talking about a situation that I had back in the day, one of my first jobs at a major label that shall go unnamed for the moment. And I had been promoted from being a legal secretary to running a department, which at the time was unprecedented. And it may still be unprecedented. I don't know. But I had been handpicked to run this department, which made me very proud. I'd worked very hard. This had never been done before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the first year that I was running this department, it was a really hard job, very tough, but I had a great, great boss. And he and I worked really well together. We trusted each other. We both worked like dogs. We both had a you know very strong work ethic, et cetera. And then the company sort of reorganized, and I went from reporting to this boss who I loved and admired uh, mutually supportive relationship to reporting to someone else who uh, turned out to be a horrible, horrible hag. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, um, and the upshot of it was she'd been brought in from outside and she decided she wanted to clear the decks and bring in her own people. This happens a lot. So in hindsight, I can see it was just sort of a normal thing that lots of people do. You get hired, you want to bring in your own people. That's that's common, okay? And it's not necessarily bad, except that after working so hard for so long and to be running a department and to have that position that I had earned and been handpicked to to serve in, I was a little bit reluctant to be sort of pushed out, you might say, especially by someone who was concocting a uh, sort of a campaign of my alleged crimes, right? So, I fought back tooth and nail, and this woman herself ended up getting fired. So I think that that situation, what I learned from it and what I would want to convey to the people who may be listening to this this interview, is you have to pick your battles. You can't let people push you around. <laughs> You want to fight back, all right? And you want to ask for help. So in this case, I was extremely lucky to have a very good friend who was a tough-as-nails attorney and who considered me almost her little sister and would protect me at all costs. I was extremely fortunate to have a friend like that 
in my in my court. And another tremendous friend as well, who was probably the best legal mind I've ever run into and, and is a mentor to me to this day. So these two people helped me to fight back against what was basically an attempted wrongful termination, right? So I bring this up as a, I guess, an example of, of, of adversity. And the lesson is ask for help. Make sure you know what your options are. Fight back. Don't roll over. Don't let people treat you badly. And even though that was a tremendously uncomfortable situation to live through, I found from that that I had strength I didn't know I had. And I really stuck it to that woman in the most profound but professional way, all with memos. (laughs) 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 Which to this day, I've saved copies as, you know, this, when I responded to this woman's allegations of my wrongdoings in a, in a, I think a 20 page memo, which I copied to all the legal team up and down the, you know, up and down the, 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 the org chart at this company, this, this woman, my boss at the time took a six week, sick leave of absence. <laughs> so I knew I'd really, you know, sock it to her good. And I think, Women have to understand that they can ask for help. They should ask for help. They should get the best advice they can. And when we band together, not just as women, but as people, we're going to be stronger. So this is an important point because I think lots of people are afraid to ask for help, not just women, but people in general. You you have to be willing to do that. And it's not necessarily a sign of weakness. I, as was pointed out to me recently, this is something that I do a lot. I'm always asking people for help. I'm always asking for feedback to weird problems. What do you think? This has just happened. Do you have any suggestions? And then I'm able to sort of process the different options available to me. And sometimes I'll come up with my own solution or sometimes someone will have proposed an idea that I hadn't considered and that turns out to be the best alternative. So it's creative problem solving, asking for help, and not putting up with bad behavior from other people. You have to put a stop to it immediately. So I think that one of my attributes, and it would be probably easier for someone else to say this than for me to say it about myself, is I I think I have a demeanor that lets people know in in, in a nonverbal way that they shouldn't mess with me. (laughs) I'm just, you know, it's not that I'm some belligerent fighting girl or anything like that, but I I think, I hope that I communicate strength and confidence. And those are people who are generally not picked on. And if somebody does pick on me or decides to, you know, come at me, well, bring it on. (laughs) I'll, you know, I'll handle whatever comes my way. I'm not looking for a fight. In fact, you know, the best way to win a fight is to avoid a fight. So you learn to read people. You learn to read psychology. You can tell who the bullies are. You know, give them a wide berth. And if they come at you, then stand your ground. So I hope this is answering your questions. But I, I really want women to know that they have a lot going for them that they need to find their own strengths. 
that they need to learn how to stand up for themselves. And maybe not everybody is as good as that, good at that as the next guy. But these are attributes that you can learn. You have to recognize your weaknesses and turn them into strengths, or at least reduce your weaknesses, or build your muscles. Uh, learn how to be a public speaker. Learn how to stand up for yourself. Learn how to say no, no thank you, stop that, or may I please participate. Get involved. Don't wait for an engraved invitation. So I, I, I don't want to be in the back seat of life with somebody else at the driver's wheel. I want to be driving my own car in my own lane, doing what I want with my life. And that is why I run my own business. And that is why I, I, I'm so happy to be able to choose my own destiny and not have someone else do it for me. And when you have that mindset, doors open that you can't even imagine. You couldn't even have thought it possible when you get started. So this is the mindset that I adopt and that I hope other people will learn from. So hope that answers your question in a yeah. very long and rambling <laughs> way. <laughs> so shifting gears again, I know you have interfaced with countless artists from high level to emerging to aspiring. What advice do you have for artists on how they can succeed in their career? <clears throat> the best advice is to have a plan and to become remarkable. So having a plan is the thing that most people lack. They have a couple of ideas, goals, et cetera, and that's important and very useful. But a plan, and let's just call it a marketing plan, is three things. It's your goals, it's a timeline, and a budget. That's what a marketing plan is. What are you trying to accomplish? Be as specific as possible. What's your timeline? How, how long are you going to give yourself? Is this a five-year plan? Is this a six-month plan? And what's your budget? If you don't have much money or even if you have no money, your budget might be zero, in which case you're going to do everything yourself and it's going to take you longer, but that's okay. So the marketing plan is the key. I see too many people spinning their wheels, doing as, as much as possible, but none of it really tied together in an organized fashion. So it becomes tremendously dispiriting when you are not getting anywhere and you're doing all this stuff uh, that doesn't seem to be working. So it's usually better, and this applies not just to artists but to everybody, to slow down and look at exactly what you're doing. What are you trying to accomplish? When your goals are clear, and by the way, you can write down your goals today and tomorrow they may change and that's okay, but when your goals are clear, then it's easier to transmit those goals to someone else, to give somebody a one-page plan and say, this is what I'm trying to do. And lo and behold, when you tell people, let's say, John Cia, you want to be, I don't know, let's say you want to be a music producer or let's say you want to be a the next, you know, the female Larry King or who knows what, right? If you tell people that, this is what I want to do, you'd be shocked and amazed at how many opportunities start to come your way because an essential uh, ingredient of human nature is that we like to help other people. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And so if you were to tell me, John C., that you want to do this or that or the other, I would, my antenna would immediately be uh, activated to connect you with any opportunity that I could think of that might help you. And if not now, then in the future. And this is what happens, and this is the essence of how you manifest 
your own success, when you're clear about what you want. And I believe that most people don't quite get what they want because they're not clear about what they want. They're not willing to stake, uh, you know, stake a claim on it. Uh, it's very vague. Well, I want to be successful. You know, I want to put out an album. Well, okay, anybody can put out an album. That's not even special. That's not even particularly worthy of a press release. You know how many songs are uploaded to the streaming services worldwide every day now? The last number I heard was 40,000, and that's probably on the low side now. You know how many albums are released every day? So people have to be very clear about their goals, and then you start to backtrack uh, backward uh, planning for forward progress. Okay, so if you want to do something in 18 months, you want to be touring, uh, let's say, the Southwest, United States. Well, then you start to identify the territories where you might like to perform. And then you start to look at the cities, and then you start to look at the venues, and then you figure out who the booking agents are, and then you decide, you know, what's the capacity? Can I draw enough people to even uh, convince a promoter to, to book me? What do I have to do in order to build my audience? And then you start to build from there. You, you create a campaign around your goals, and it doesn't have to be complicated. So my biggest piece of advice to people is to have some sort of plan. I'm a really big believer in writing things down because when you write things down, there's a creative process that is, that is initiated in your brain, especially handwriting, not just on a keyboard, but handwriting with a, with a pen or a pencil in your hand. There's, there's, there's a, a mechanism that is activated in your brain that helps to start opening the doors of creativity and your creative impulses and drawing those things towards you that you want. If you write down on paper, this is what I plan to do. This is, some, this is one reason why I think journaling is extremely useful, uh, not only in the creative industries, but generally you start to put down on paper what it is you want and maybe equally important what you don't want. So having a plan is the most essential thing for any artist in the business and then creating a team of people around you who believe in you. But that's true of any human, not just of artists. You want people around you who are supporters, who will raise you up, who can mentor you, who can give you advice, comfort, um, a shoulder to cry on when you need it, who can be supportive in every possible way. You don't want negative people around you. You don't want the cynics, the losers, the tire kickers, the victims. You can't. You don't have time for that. Life is much too short. I'm not saying you don't help people who are down on their luck, but you don't allow the negative people into your inner circle. It's just. It's just a bad, bad plan. The more you surround yourself with positive folks, the better off you're going to be, and the faster you will be able to activate your plan. So, last question: What is your go-to song when you're in need of motivation? <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> anything uplifting? There, there's so many great, great songs. I mean, I love some of the old time rock and Brit pop. I love The Who, Quadrophenia. I love old David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, and the Spiders from Mars. Um, I love lots of classical music. I mentioned the Emperor Concerto, Beethoven. God, that's staggeringly beautiful piece of music. I've been listening a lot lately to Elgar and his Enigma Variations. I really, really love Muse. Uh, they have so many great songs. And just, there's there's an infinite number of songs out there, just infinite. And 
oddly, even though I work in the music business, I don't listen to that much music because when I do, I really want to give it my full focus and attention. A lot of people listen to music sort of as background and wallpaper, and I don't like to do that. In fact, I can't do that because it's too distracting to me. If I'm working or on the phone or writing or an email or anything like that, I, I, I need I need silence. I can't have – music is a distraction to me. And I also feel, personally, if you're going to listen to it, then listen to it. I don't like music as a secondary uh, – I don't like music as wallpaper. I like music front and center or not at all. So music in the background, it's 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 not – to me, it's not it's not ideal. I can't work like that. Um, and I want to give music my full attention and the respect that it deserves. And if I'm listening to something and I don't like it, then, you know, I can switch to something else very quickly. That's part of the uh, problem in the digital age is people have the attention span of parakeets, and they can jump to this or that or the other, skip, skip, skip. So I hope this answers your question. I think you started out with what's my favorite song. My goodness. Um, (laughs) Well, I think I mentioned a few in there, but, God, there's so many. It's just... It's mind-boggling. There's an infinite. There's so much music out there now. Who could possibly even listen to it all? Which, by the way, is the big challenge when we're dealing in the music business now. Is the hardest thing of all is to get somebody's time and attention. How do you do that when there's an infinite, literally almost infinite, uh, number of songs to choose from? How do you get one person to listen to your song? So that's the big challenge, and that maybe will leave for the next interview, if there ever is one, um, since I've talked so much now, I hope I haven't talked your ear off, John C.A. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Tess, thank you so much for sharing your insight and journey today. I appreciate you making the time to, to chat with us. And to no our listeners, yeah. <laughs> and to our listeners, that's a wrap. Please don't forget to subscribe to Music Made Me, rate us on iTunes, and follow us on social media at TuneCore. Thanks for listening to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of TuneCore. Check out TuneCore.com to help you distribute your music, register your original songs worldwide, and more. Connect with us on all social channels at TuneCore. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. 